Anybody here consider themselves a do-it-yourselfer when it comes to like landscaping or house yard, or um, uh, you know, kind of home improvement kind of stuff? Lisa, you're a do-it-yourselfer. With what exactly? Yard work in the garden, right? Sheetrock. Yeah. Well, yeah, she's like the union supervisor, for and Ralph's like you know the guy. Yeah, I know a guy. She knows Ralph, right? Okay. Very good. Anybody else really good at do-it-yourself kind of stuff? Come on, don't be shy. This, yeah. <laughs> What'd you say? You have to. Do you now? Yes. <laughs> Somebody else. Adam, you're all right. Yeah. You're kind of you're drifting into the professional world, if I remember correctly. Yeah. You're like excluded from this. You know, the bell curves like this. You're in the 99 percentiles. So we got to lop you off. And I'm in the 1%. They lock me off over here. It's all you other folks are actually more. Things we learned about real quick is that her dad was very much a do-it-yourselfer, and she married somebody who was not a do-it-yourselfer. And so her expectations had to come sliding down really fast, you know. So we got, we got married and moved pretty quickly to Dallas, Texas, and, and bought a little condominium there. And her dad went with me, drove from Birmingham to Dallas to start working on this condo that needed some, that it needed. But I mean, so he took me in and we washed the walls down because they were filthy before we primed and painted and painted all the, all the things. And, and that kind of put the, the you know, kind of gave me the bug a little bit. Like, hey, maybe, I'm, maybe hey, I can roll paint. Maybe I can like, do something a little more substantive. And you can save so much money. And who can find a contractor anyway? I don't think that's ever changed. And, and so I, I, I learned how to tile our bathroom floor, which was as big of a disaster as it might sound to you, putting me in charge of tile. Like, so I, you know, I, I didn't have enough money to rent the power saw and the wet saw, and that terrified me anyway. For sure I was going to lose a finger. And so I had to score it you know, with the thing and then break it. If you haven't done this, I think everybody should have to do this at least once, once in their life. And we eventually got it done. I learned how to pull up a toilet, put a new toilet down. Um, I did this to our kitchen. I didn't have a table that was good enough for me to work on, so on the oven I had the score of the tile, and I was you know, running it back and forth, and boom, breaking it, trying, hoping it wouldn't splinter into a thousand, a thousand pieces. Now, I'm, I'm better now. I don't know that you would want me to come over and help, you know, unless you want me to carry something. I can kind of carry some light things under 30 pounds, but, you know. <laughs> But, I, but I'm a little more, you know, I'm a little bit better now. And there's something very satisfying, right? Very gratifying about, hey, I laid that floor. I painted that wall. I mudded. That looks smooth. Ken's pack. Yay, thank you very much. So we, it was a work, and, we, and instead of doing anything work-related, we did something fun. We all painted together. I want you to think about that for a second. All these 50 of us around it, Paint the Town came in and, and had us do a Bob Ross painting. Y'all, mine's so bad. And the kids were like, oh, Dad, you painted. You know, like, it was not... 
It's not like, but it's up on the bookshelf right now if you, if you want to come over and see. The lady was so nice. She's like, oh, you're trying to do, and you know what, never mind. You're not really trying at all, are you? Yes, I am. Like, but so it's up on the thing. Very, very, very proud of it. So I, there's some pride that comes to that kind of stuff, and that's good, okay? You, there, is, there, is, there is good and right to have some pride about the do-it-yourself things. There is an area, however, that as a theologian, I want to discourage you from being a do-it-yourselfer, and that is with regard to faith and your relationship with the Lord, okay? So wanting to be right with God of our own effort is not just an American Western culture thing. That is a human thing. And there are all kinds of examples of the, in the Bible from, old, from Genesis to Revelation, honestly, of us trying to do that in the examples, but the the cream of the crop are the Pharisees and that Jesus has been in relationship with all the way through the, the, our study of the book of Matthew. And if you're just joining us for the first time, the reason I'm talking about this today is because we're just reading Matthew in order and going through it. And here we are in chapter 23 where Jesus is saying his final piece to the Pharisees. This is the end of the road um, to these do-it-yourself religion-first, spiritual people trying to earn favor with God through their religious practices. Now, these words that we're going to read through Matthew 23, they are directed from Jesus to them. I, I get that, historical context, 100% right. But the principle underneath what he is saying applies universally to everybody in this room in very personal and a little bit uncomfortable ways, all right? So uh, if this is in those category of chapters that are uncomfortable, and so, but let's, so just, you know, bow up. Okay, here we go. Um, here's, here's um, I forgot my prop. Oh, I was going to bring a prop. Oh, bummer. I was going to bring a level. I have a four-foot-long level, okay? So this text is like a, is a level for your spiritual life. You want to put it up against the wall to see if everything's level and even and, and, and in the lines. This is, the, this is a great text as a level, okay, for your spiritual, spiritual life. If you look at verses 3 through 5, there are three core issues with the Pharisees that they had. The first one is that they're hypocritical. Look at verse 3. Jesus says, therefore, do whatever they tell you because they, they love the law. The law is not the problem. And observe it, Jesus says, but don't do what they do. Do whatever they tell you to do, but don't do whatever they do because they don't actually practice what they preach. The first core problem with the Pharisee is that they were hypocrites. Okay? Uh, Matthew Henry's widely available free commentary on the Bible, he has this really incredible quote about hypocrites and preachers in particular. He says... When they're in the pulpit, they preach so well that it's a pity that they should ever leave the pulpit. But when they are out of the pulpit, they live so poorly, it's a pity they should ever go into the pulpit. That, in a nutshell, is what was wrong with the Pharisees, Jesus says in verse 3. And then in verse 4, he says that they are indifferent. Look at verse 4, they tie up heavy loads that are hard to carry, and they put them on people's shoulders, 
but they themselves aren't willing to lift a finger to move them. So they're hypocritical and they are indifferent to the burdens that they're putting on other people. When I was 12 years old, I was in the Boy Scouts and we had to go on a hiking trip. Maybe I was 13 at this time. And we, we went out into the country freezing our rear ends off. And then the next day, uh, Bob had us all, we had to do a, to earn the merit badge that we were working on, we all had to wear at least a 30-pound pack and hike in the Mississippi Delta, there's not a hill for 50 miles in any direction in the Mississippi Delta. This was not hard. 30-pound pack and walk X number of miles a thing. Y'all, I couldn't do it. I graduated high school, 17, 6'2", 125, 127, 25% of my weight on my back. I literally couldn't do it. Okay, and if you're laughing inside, making fun of me, that's fine. I lived through all that. I get it, right? So, I could not make it the number of miles. No, and, you know, that pack was cheap. and all, I come up with all kinds of excuses, but in the end, I was feeble, all right? <laughs> so Ronnie Shive, however, was not feeble, and he took the heavy things off my pack that he also had on his, put them on his, and walked the five, six, seven miles it was. Now, he wasn't exactly loving about it, but him carrying my load was more fun for him and everybody else than me griping about not being able to carry my load. Okay? So that is, in a nutshell, what is going on with the Pharisees. If knowing God was carrying a backpack, the Pharisees were no Ronnie Shive. Okay? They interpreted the law of Moses in such a way that the people who heeded them found themselves required to perform these things that were very burdensome for them, very hard for them. But the Pharisees, they created the system, and lo and behold, what do you know, it was pretty easy for them to do because of the lifestyle they lead and the knowledge that they had. So they could do it, or at least they thought they could really do it. But the people who loved and respected and wanted to be right with God, God, this is what I got to do, and they couldn't do it, and the Pharisees did nothing to help them because what they really wanted to do was do it themselves and love themselves in the attention that they got from it. So Jesus says you're indifferent to the very people you're called to serve. So you're hypocritical, you're indifferent, and verse 5 and 6, you're prideful. Look at the text. Verse 5, they do everything to be seen by others. They enlarge their phylacteries, lengthen their tassels, they love the place of honor at banquets, the front seats in the synagogues. Kevin, I don't know what's going on in here. Nobody loves the front seat here. We're all so humble. We just don't want to sit in the front. We're too tall. We're too tall for the front. Kim says I can't sit there anymore because I'm because I'm. I was like, I'm put John over here and I'll show you tall. But anyway, the greetings in the, the front seats, the greetings in the marketplaces. They love to be called rabbi by the people. Look at verse six. They do everything to be seen by others. Where do you do everything to be seen by others right now? Where where do you do this? Facebook, well, you're too old, Adam. Oh, Facebook, <laughs> or Instagram, or TikTok, or Twitter. This is the, what Jesus is saying, they love social media. Now, they didn't have our social media, but they had their form of social media, and it was the community hall in, the name, in their village, and it was a synagogue. And so everybody came to the synagogue, and the Pharisees loved it because that's where they were known, and that's where they were made much of, and that's where they would uh, you know, go down to the, the front, the seat of Moses, the stone seat. They wanted to be teachers. They wanted that seat of honor. Do you remember if you grew up in a Southern Baptist or something like this, when the organ would be playing, 
the organ, not the keyboard. The organ would be, would be playing, not the Hammond organ, like something else, kind of churchy, through a pipe even maybe. It was playing, and then the pastors and maybe the deacons would come out from behind, and there were different chairs on the stage, and some of those chairs had, were taller, a little bit bigger, had arms. That's where the preacher sat, right? Right? And then maybe the deacon doing the prayer got to sit next to him when the armless chair. <laughs> Worship pastor, the youth pastor is back. You know, we don't even know he's not even on stage. We didn't let that guy in, right? That's, that's, it comes from this. It's tradition and honor, and the Pharisees loved it. They were prideful. So you have hypocrisy, indifference, and pride. Take your level. Of hypoc- made of hypocrisy, indifference, and pride, and just take a minute and press that up against your body, your mind, your heart, your soul, and just do a little check. Where's the bubble? Okay? So Jesus took that, those three categories, hypocrisy, indifference, and pride, and then he goes super deep. He, he takes a very deep dive to the practical things you can look at and ask yourself, am I that? Is there hypocrisy, indifference, and pride in my life to the extent that I am doing, I am, you know, James, we told you this in Sunday school today, if you're in an adult Sunday school class, James too, James says, there is no faith without works. This is the opposite of that. That is, I don't need faith because I have works. So Jesus is taking that, that really deep dive Seven different woes, laments. Jesus wails. He is heartbroken about the Pharisees. And as we look at these seven woes, you could easily, on your, in your own mind, do this, categorize them under hypocrisy, indifference, or pride. So how can you know, you, Blackman Baptist Church, Rob Timms, how can you know if at your core there is hypocrisy, indifference, and pride, that, that there is a do-it-yourself spirituality instead of hum- humility and helpfulness and genuineness and confidence in the work of Christ, not in your own heart. How can you know? Here are seven woes that Jesus... Look at verse 13. Jesus says, woe to you. Why? You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. How? For you don't go in, and you don't allow those entering to go in. So the Pharisees, in reality, were effectively shutting people out of God's kingdom at the same time that they claimed to be helping them into God's kingdom. It's, it, is an exa- it is blind leading the blind. Okay? And that's, I mean, that's hypocrisy. The Pharisees for uh, wanting to be at the top of the religious pyramid to, to lead the parade, to lead the line, to be in the front, follow me. But in the, and, they, and they got the praise of the people for doing it. And in receiving the praise of the people for that, they were leading the parade to the very doors of heaven in their minds. But in reality, they actually were going a completely different direction. That's what Jesus is saying. So the, the Pharisees were actually standing in the way of being right with God, but thinking that they were the way 
and the thing that they had created were the way in order to be right with God. And, and Jesus says in verse 6, woe, or excuse me, verse, um, somebody help me. <laughs> verse 13, sorry, thank you. Verse 13, woe, woe to you who do such a thing. Here's what, here's what this means for y'all and for us. It is the responsibility of every Jesus follower to do the gospel work that they are supposed to do so that the gospel fruit can grow. That's the responsibility, to, to love the gospel, to do the gospel work so that gospel fruit can grow and gospel growth can grow, okay? And it's easy to pick on a preacher on national television who doesn't do that. But the fact of the matter is that this woe applies to any Christian who consciously creates obstacles to belief through their life, consciously. Everybody sins. It's not about making mistakes. It's about proclaiming Christ when you, and recognizing the need for repentance, but if you don't do that, you're, you are consciously creating um, obstacles to faith in your own life and in the lives who are, of those who are watching you. So do you know full well that you are sinning in a way that would likely deter someone from at least inquiring about the faith and you just don't care? Are you complacent or indifferent in your choices? Are you exploring the work of a false teacher on purpose and encouraging others to read or listen? Are you assuming that you're right with God based on something other than Jesus? And are you encouraging others to do the same? Then Jesus would say, woe to you. It's not going to go well for you. I'm sad for you. My heart is broken for you. Because it's the responsibility of every follower to do the gospel work they're called to do so that gospel fruit can grow. Don't create obstacles. Number two, do we recruit others? to arrive at conclusions that are contrary to the gospel. Look at verse 15. Jesus says, You travel over land and sea to make one convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a child of hell as you are. Now, I've hit on this a little bit already, but now it's like super explicit, right? This goes beyond false teaching to actually drawing people into your corruptive way of life and your, your corruptive thinking. So if you were, and you can, I mean, if you, uh, what's the way to say this? You see this when you read Acts and Paul's letters. But during Jesus' day, there was, in the Jewish people, a great deal of fervor and zeal and revival taking place for really pure obedience to the law, to be God's people. That's why they had such high messianic expectations. They were trying to usher that in through their obedience. And so there was a great deal of zeal and a great deal of fervor. And so, in fact, a lot of the, the chief opposition to the gospel, to Paul's uh, church planting, wasn't from Rome. It was from really zealous Jews like Paul had been because they were trying to be evangelistic for Judaism, for the law. And so Jesus says, you travel over land and sea to make one convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a child of hell as you are. I watched the first episode of a documentary last week called Heaven's Gate, the story of tea and dough. Some of you will remember this cult that ended in the death of 39 people, all wearing uniforms because they were going to be taken away by a spaceship to the next kingdom. 
It was rooted in Christianity, started by a woman who uh, took advantage of a psychotic episode in a man. They, never, they weren't husband and wife. She just took advantage of him and started this cult called Heaven's Gate. Well, she died before Heaven's Gate became a reality. And he, in her absence, took it to a whole other level. He did this. He was a convert that became twice as much a child of hell as she was. So the application of this is really straightforward. We need to be aware, not only of are we misleading ourselves, but when we do, we are exponentially creating more problems for those that we influence. Are you doing that? We're like, you know, gremlins. We're like uh, those things that get, what were they, not gremlins, what was it before? What was it called? 1980s, Steven Spielberg. It starts with an M. What's it called? No, 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 not a munchkin. Ah, it's so 2000s. A A mogwai. Who said that? Who said it? Oh, thank you. Mogwai. It got wet and it multiplied, right? And then it ate after midnight and you get gremlins. Yep. That's what this is. It's a Steven Spielberg movie. Jesus had no idea what he was doing, but that's what it was. Number three, do we consciously trivialize Scripture? Oh, boy. If you read verses 16 through 22, Jesus is pointing out how the Pharisees would make these minute distinctions in some laws in order to avoid their true meaning. Oh, boy. Or escape their consequences. And if you read verses 16 through 22, oaths, it was one of those categories where they had a field day. Not just those, like Jesus and divorce. This, that was a lot of the backstory between Jesus' teaching on divorce with the Pharisees. Oaths was a huge, huge issue, and they were trivializing Scripture in order to escape its consequences or its meaning. Do you remember in the NFL? Have you ever watched an NFL? You know, now we have instant replay. It has become impossible to determine whether or not you have caught a football. Just watch. watch. It's unreal. Like, no, you have to catch it, which is what we're trying to determine. It's got to be in your hands, but you have to put it in position, and then you have to make a football move, whatever that is, and take at least X number of steps. Like, it's minutia trying to, which acknowledges the fact we don't really know what a catch is anymore. That is what the Pharisees were doing with the law. And by making it really complicated, they would then be able to escape its meaning or its consequences in their minds, right? Boy, you can do this with the Bible. The temptation to do that is really great because at some point, here's what happens. Your doctrine gets tested by the culture or from within. But at some point, something you say you believe and everybody's great with it for a while, testing eventually comes. And when it gets tested... One of the things that you're really tempted to do is say, well, and you splice it up into a thousand different pieces and you escape any real consequences or have to actually deal with the truth of it. And that's a real struggle for preachers and a real struggle for pastors, but that's really a struggle for you, okay? Because at some point, and it's happening more and more frequently, believing the scriptures, believing something is actually going to cost you something that you love You're going to feel the temptation to do this, to consciously trivialize the scriptures so that you can escape the fire that you're in. Don't do it. 
Woe to you, Jesus says. Number four, do we fail to keep the main thing the main thing? Look at verses 23 and 24. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You pay a tenth of mint, dill, and cumin. All delicious. And yet you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. All substantive. These things should have been done without neglecting the others. Blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but you gulp down a camel. Okay? So the Pharisees took tithing laws that applied to grain and uh, oil and wine and sometimes fruit. And that, that, that's what they applied to, and they applied it right down to the minutia of the mint and the dill and the cumin and all, like I said, all those little things that you might have in your home. And Jesus doesn't say, don't tithe on those kind of things. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say that. What he condemns is that they're so preoccupied with getting these little, making sure it's 10%. I'm doing spices, I guess, but making sure it's, you know, they're doing all these little things that they completely forget to do what? Justice. Mercy, faithfulness, I mean the big rocks of what it actually means to know and love God and and love neighbor. They couldn't do that because they were counting their spice rack, making sure they were doing that. That is not keeping the main thing the main thing. Have you ever allowed a small point of theology just to completely obsess you? You know, it's not justification or, it's not that. It's like, Jesus come back on this date in this manner. And it is exactly, it is a white horse. There's no, there's no, like whatever. Like pick your secondary or tertiary thing and you make that a primary thing. And in doing so, you mislead all kinds of people about what actually the gospel is about. Right? Micah 6, 8. He has shown, what does the Lord require of you to act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with God? Do we fail to keep the main thing the main thing? Then Jesus says in verse 25 and 26, do we blind ourselves and others by keeping up our appearances? Oh, man. You know, you've ever been with the kids? And then you get to church, you're like, what's up, y'all? Praise God, so glad to be here. Right, we're keeping up appearances. Look at verse 25 and 26. You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup so that the outside of it may also become clean. So this is actually... um, you may be wondering, like, why Jesus would use this as an illustration. Well, it's, it's because he knew they would resonate with it. But we have to kind of do some history work to resonate with this. So the Pharisees debated among themselves about what it meant to keep a kosher kitchen. Now the government has decided this is a kosher kitchen, and now you can put the label on. Or this is, this is organic product, and then they put the label on. They're standing. Uh, oh, I told you the name of somebody. That doesn't mean that I read everything and believe everything Barclay says. Just want to be clear. Uh, but it's a really helpful commentary to, uh, about, about this, okay? This is what he says. This is this. He says, an earthen vessel, a cup, okay? In this, in this case, it's a cup. It could, there are lots of earthen vessels. Became unclean. Y'all listen to this. Only on the inside and not on the outside. So the outside could be filthy, but if the inside was clean, then, then, it would been, been, then it would have been declared 
clean, okay? Even though it's dirty on the outside, okay? But if it got unclean, stuff on the inside, you know how you fix it? You know how you can make an unclean vessel clean? According to Jewish law, you have to break it. I want you to think about that for a second. You can't, you can't do it. You can't do anything ritualistically to make an unclean vessel clean. You have to break it. Well, that should have been a gospel clue, don't you think? Blessed are the what? Poor in spirit. It's unbelievable, isn't it? Yeah. But listen to, the, listen to the triviality of the law. The following earthen vessels cannot become unclean at all. A flat plate without a rim, an open cold shovel, a gridiron with holes in it for parching grains of wheat. Okay. On the other hand, a plate with a rim or an earthen spice box or a writing case can become unclean. Of vessels made of leather, bone, wood, glass, flat ones do not become unclean. Deep ones do. If they are broken, they become clean. Are you confused? I'm totally confused. The food or drink inside a vessel might have been obtained by cheating or extortion or theft. It could be luxurious or gluttonous. That did not matter as long as the vessel itself was ceremonially clean. What? I mean, it's absurd, but guess what? We have all of these equivalents that we're prone to. It's, this is all that law is about keeping up appearance. That's in principle. That's what it's about. It's about keeping up appearance. It really doesn't matter that much if you have some dishonesty in your business or you're covetous in your money or you have cruel dealings with your family or you're selfish or proud or arrogance. As long as I give the appearance that I'm faithful and don't even pay attention to my heart, I'm good. And Jesus says, woe to you. Woe to you. Number six. Are you, do you fret more about looking sinless than being sinless? It's similar to number five. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. You're like whitewashed tombs, which appear beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of the bones of dead and every kind of impurity. In the same way, you seem righteous to people, but inside you're actually full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. This Passover week, remember? This is Passover week. And the week and the month before Passover week, um, it was Jewish practice the month before to come to the tombs and whitewash them on the outside so that they would be clearly marked and obvious to the people who were on their way to Jerusalem. They wouldn't step on them, and they could stay clean. So they would, they would whitewash their tombs. And so Jesus is saying that the Pharisees' lives look like those whitewashed tombs. They look sinless, but inside they are full of sin. And so Jesus is saying, are, do you and I, are we the people who want to look sinless rather than acknowledge our sinfulness? Are we more concerned about people seeing our sin than we are about actually being sinful? Where's, where, are we experiencing shame because we got caught or because we're actually ashamed and broken that we did it? Right? So there's something good about knowing you're a sinful person. The Pharisees, they recognized that sin exists, right? But they thought that they could do something permanently to fix it through obedience to the law. And when the law of God outside your heart collides with the sin on the inside of your heart, there is an epic battle that takes place, but you're going to lose. Okay? At the best, you can clean up the outside, which is what the Pharisees were doing, right? 
So this woe says, man, are you more worried about being sinless on the outside than you are about acknowledging the sinfulness on the inside? And then lastly, Jesus says in verses 29 through 36, do you support your own version of cancel culture? And if you read verses 29 through 36, what you'll see is that the Pharisees and the ancestors had murdered all the, murdered, 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 murdered the righteous persons from the past, all the way from Abel to Zechariah. Okay? And when they spoke in a manner or on a subject they didn't like, these prophets got canceled. They didn't want anybody to hear what they had to say. So cancel culture is not new. It's not a new problem. It's a very biblical problem. Right? If you study the Gospel of Matthew with us, what Jesus is doing here is pointing to a future in just a bit where they're going to cancel him. Right? They've done it before. They're going to do it in a real way now. And if you've listened to Jesus and you've looked at some of his teaching, it's admittedly been really hard to swallow from time to time. And you and I can kind of get it a little bit better just because of the perspective that we have. But you can imagine just how tempting it is. Have we read something in the last 22 chapters where you thought, I don't know about that? That's church over here, but over here, this is business. This doesn't apply. <laughs> Wrong. Have, have you read anything in the last 22 chapters and thought, I'm just going to pretend like I didn't read that? You're canceling Jesus. Canceling Jesus. So what do we do? Well, look what Jesus is in verse 37 through 39. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets that I just mentioned and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, which is really fun to watch on YouTube, by the way, because that's what I did to see what that meant. But look what Jesus says. You were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus goes on a rant for seven different woes, seven different woes, name called a hypocrite, indifferent, prideful. I mean, he just goes, it is, is what it is. But all of it is a woe, which is a lament, which is a wail. Jesus is not heated. He is heartbroken. When J Jesus lines up the level to the plumb line, to, to, to the lives of the Pharisees and sees that they are way out of balance, he cries. He's, he is broken. When you hold up the level of the gospel to the world, are you angry or are you broken? Bro Jesus was broken, and he was the only one who could be truly angry because he's the only one who's right, truly righteous. And the truly righteous one, heart was broken. Nehemiah foreshadowed this. Nehemiah did, his, his, for the generation, his grandparents had sinned and put them into exile. Nehemiah, a Jew, grew up and became cupbearer to the king. 
And when he heard that Jerusalem was in a terrible state, 70 years later, when they were in a really terrible state, he cried and wept. He identified with the sin of the prior generations. And his heart was broken, and God used him to rebuild Jerusalem. Jesus' heart is broken, and God has sent him and using him to make us right. To make us right. And if your heart will break for the fallenness in this world, you'll be in a position to bring the gospel to bear and see restoration begin to take place. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for the word of Jesus in this text because it challenges us and gives us a a level to stand up against to see where the bubble lines up spiritually. The hypocrisy and the indifference and the pride that is always present. We're fighting it and fighting it and fighting it by the Spirit, by the power of the Spirit. Would you make us more like your son, heartbroken for the do-it-yourself religion or the indifference, or the outright rebellion to the truth of the gospel. And in that brokenness, will we proclaim and will we serve by in the power of the Spirit? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.